Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of... Beneath the Screen on the Ultra Critics! <laughs> I figured I'd, I'd just do something simple and direct. Is that... That's fine. Right? Considering how long okay. it took us to get here, it's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joined, as always, that. by my co-host, Thad. Oh, yes, hello. And, as always, by our other co-host, Kara. Oh, I've been promoted, Hello. Well, you might as well be. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 how my boss says the same thing. Oh. <laughs> uh, All right. Uh, welcome, yes, welcome, of course, to the show where the points are meaningless and the rules don't matter. <laughs> my favorite game shows. Um, where the barbs are biting and everything just hurts a little too much. <laughs> wow. Oh, are, are we are we talking about Hellraiser today? Is that? I don't. Know. It sounds like Kara's gonna need a hug after this show. Um, we Kira. have such sights to show you. <laughs> All right. Anyway, hello. So today we're continuing our our dive into musicals, and this week yeah, we are looking. All, at yeah, who, I wish we had a jingle for that because it seems like uh, like you know. A thing we should musicals. have. Yeah. No. Oh. We'll look into I'm that. musically talentless, so... Yeah. I only play trombone. Sort of. All right. The musicals <laughs> we're going to be looking at today are going to be uh, 1971... Sorry, 72, Cabaret. 1980s mm. Popeye. And 1983's Yentl. And I before we get started... I could do a Popeye voice. <laughs> if only Eric Johnson was available. Um... <sighs> Before we get started, just with a normal go around. Had you guys seen any of these three before we did this episode? Yes. So um, I knew I'd seen Popeye. I had like this big thing. I think I saw it when I was a kid. And as I'm watching it, you know how in a horror movie, like someone like <laughs> walks into the house and they have this like flashback and like flashes between their adult self and their child self, and like they scream and like have this like weird meltdown. Like that was definitely what was happening to me because I didn't know this. What was eerie is I had no idea what the plot of the movie was. That is where the movie goes in the story and ends up. Hold but on, I hold knew... on, hold on, hold on. There's yeah. a plot in Popeye? Yeah, like, like <laughs> the eventual, there, there isn't. The eventual end point of the film was, like, truly unknown to me. But at one point in time, I started singing along to the songs, which are, uh, I always feel like a, a Philistine because they're awful. They're right. awful. I hated them. I hated the songs in this so much that I went to check to see that the lyricist was dead, and he is, thank God. And uh, <laughs> they were then stuck in my head because apparently when I was like two and a half, I loved th- this movie. And so it's that weird thing where you're watching something. Like It's like when you learn a foreign language, and you're like, oh, like now I understand what this movie is about. Like it's the same thing, only, oh, now I'm an adult, so I understand they're talking about sex. It was <laughs> It was a horrifying experience. So basically, Carol was haunted by Popeye. Yeah. Uh, I I had also seen Popeye, like, in that childhood way where it was on TV sometimes, and I, I was, like, vaguely familiar with it, but uh, in a way that w- did not involve existential terror. So I guess right. Kara's is better. Um, but I, I, know actually, the... I, I think I've, I'm pretty sure I'd heard the soundtrack to Cabaret before just by, by being in a theater department in high school. But I had not actually seen Cabaret or uh, Yentl before. 
Um, I am un- I was unfamiliar with Lent- Yentl except for all of the parodies made of the songs. Uh, but weirdly <laughs> enough, Cabaret's Cabaret, which is a song that for some reason I watched the music, not the music video, but like the excerpt of it on YouTube. And I listened to it pretty consistently, but I never was interested in watching the rest of the movie. But that was... <laughs> Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just know whatever it is. It clearly started in childhood, and it may have involved Popeye. Um, I don't know if there's anything particularly wrong with you. Um, for me, I had seen all of these except Cabaret. Um, I had I had heard some of the songs from Cabaret because of Glee and having friends in theater. But yeah, yeah. Popeye I had seen when I was a kid. And I'd maybe seen it as a teenager. I don't remember much. And Yentl, I discovered because of Glee, because they got me into Barbra Streisand. And it's one Fair. of the, three, it's one of the th- uh, three movies that we're discussing today. It's the one I own physically on DVD. Ooh. <laughs> Fancy. So that, so that means it can never be, be taken away from you by the arbitrary tides of streaming services. Yep. I have until, Yentl. Until like, Netflix it, starts knocking on your... <laughs> <laughs> until Netflix starts knocking on doors and being like, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to have a physical copy of that right. anymore. You're right, police. Let's start with the earliest one, Cabaret, 1973. Bob Fosse, who is a uh, musical... Sorry, 1972. I don't know why I keep wanting to say 73. Bob Fosse... your number. Right. Bob Fosse is a musical director, a sort of a legend in musicals, especially in film musicals and stage musicals. There was even... uh, Mm -hmm. Ryan Murphy had a miniseries about him, Fosse and Verdon. Starring Sam Rockwell. I really want to see that. Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams. Ooh. Yeah. It's supposed to be really good, but this was my first Fosse film, I think. Hmm. Um, but I was... Technically, I was saying this is probably the best of the three. I was mm-hmm. really shocked, and I have been shocked by going back and watching older movies that deal with the rise of fascism or Nazism and how chilling... <laughs> I, f- I feel like there's some, some lessons in this right. film. <laughs> how chilling... That would have been really useful like uh, four or five years ago. <laughs> Chillingly like contemporary, they feel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Like, just... Ooh. Like, well, what so was there's, your uh... reaction to this? So there's... I do want to add, like, for the audience, there is a great bit about a, not a bit, but, like, um, a performance. The the performances are intercut with the actions that are in real life. Um, So there's this one where this guy is dancing with a monkey, like a person in the monkey costume, talking about how he's in love with his girlfriend, even though she's ugly. And then, like, the end, the joke is, like, she's ugly, but I love her, even though she looks like a Jew. Yeah. Like, it's it's a law. Jewish. You would never yeah, yeah. know that she's Jewish. Um, yeah, actually, and it's... Go ahead. I mean, the way that the... Yeah, the way that the Master of Ceremonies changes over the film is definitely, uh, like, haunting. Uh, I mean, I, uh, granted, that guy's creepy at the very beginning, but right. in, like, a way that starts out as charming. Um, well, just that, yeah. that... The way that they lean into the... I don't know, the, the sort of weirdly unsettling way that, like, cabaret makeup can look... Yeah, and the the way that that sort of used to sneak in as he becomes more like affected by the change in the culture that we see outside of the theater, yeah, is uh, yeah, it's real. Uh, before we get too lighting. deep in this, um, do one of you want to describe the plot to Cabaret? 
So people are seeing uh, it's For a, those of you I, who I haven't can, seen the movie. <laughs> yeah, I can mm, I can give it sort of a shot. Uh, although the, the thing about Cabaret, and the, this is part of what I like a lot about it, is it's very episodic in mm-hmm. in its structure. So, like, describing the overall plot, you can you can do it fairly simply, but it's also not really about the plot so much as, as it's about, like, the, these episodes in these people's lives, I would say. So, At this like, moment in time. Yeah, yeah the, the plot is, is fairly, like, is, is a fairly simple, like, people who who meet and like become intertwined uh socially and romantically uh in and around this particular cabaret in the berlin and in the the you know twilight days of the weimar republic and yeah there's that's 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 kind of the plot <laughs> but and i mean it's 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 hard to give a a, a rundown of it because like there's characters that you think are just sort of side characters then also have like really solid subplots and like there's revelations about them like the guy who's like the con artist and then later you find out like who he is as he like falls in love with that with that uh like jewish heiress yeah and uh and and so it's like it's i i I don't know like i that's that's kind of what i love about it because i was looking up the source material and it's it's based on like a, a novella and like some short stories and it's like oh that makes a lot of sense and it 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 does that very well but um, like, so it's there's there's the the sort of direct thing of just following our, our sort of small cast of characters, and then the broader plot is like watching the infection of fascism sort of germinate in what was an incredibly like open and uh, uh, like a very open city and culture uh, until it wasn't. So right. I, I yeah, that's that's kind of my broad take. Uh, our our sort of Poor uh, characters being um, Sally Bowles, who is uh, played by Liza Minnelli, uh, who it's actually hard to know who she is for real because she's, uh, she's a liar. She says a lot of things that are not necessarily trustworthy about herself. And, and the thing that I kept doing to Kara while we were watching this is anytime Sally would say some like very dramatic thing, usually to uh, uh, Brian Roberts. Who's, who's played by Michael York, who is another, um, he is, uh, oh, she, uh, Liza Minnelli's character is, of course, like an, an American uh, expat, and uh, Michael York's character is uh, from, from uh, Britain. And she would give some sort of, like, dramatic thing about her life or, or her past or whatever, and I would, I would just turn to Karen, and I'd be like, so, borderline personality disorder, huh? <laughs> it's... It's it's real clear, and uh, <laughs> I uh, mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's like these are fictional people, but I would not be surprised if if there is like a per, a real person basis for whoever this character is based off of. Like, wow. I've met Sally Bowles, I, not like whoever it was based on, but like like watching her on stage, I'm like, oh yeah, I've, I've met that person. I know that girl. Yeah, I know her. <laughs> Bitch is crazy, but, but fun. Yeah, it's it's. it's such a like it's it's a movie that really like if you don't know much about what Weimar Germany or even just like what the 30s were like is one of those things where it's like oh yeah people were a lot more like open about like sexuality than we like to think they were based on the movies that we see about that time period that are made today right which is 
just fascinating to to see how like a lot of, yeah sorry i i don't want to i don't mean to go on and on about like pseudo tangents but just i've i've read a, i've read and listened to a lot of things about weimar germany recently and it's so. it's haunting how <laughs> uh nice a place it was before fascism uh took it over so i'm gonna so it's sally and brian right uh, yes. All right. So I'm going to give it a quick rundown. Uh, Brian is an Englishman. Sally is an American. Sally dances at night in a cabaret. Brian teaches English, trying to find himself and maybe figure out if he likes girls or not. At which point they are in the same um, boarding house together. They hit it off. It turns out he likes at least Sally. They begin a relationship. Um, she's always on the lookout to like do better for herself, become more professional and make more money. And he's just sort of trying to find a sort of prissy direction. Uh, they end up in a sort of weird emotional threesome with a lord that promises to make Sally famous and to take them all over the world. It falls apart in a strange way, at which point Sally realizes that she is pregnant, confesses this to Brian, who advises her that he has also been sleeping with this lord that's been paying them money. Mm-hmm. They fracture apart. They come back together. He offers to marry her and raise the baby, not caring whose it is. She excitedly accepts. Then they have hit sort of an odd rough past in their relationship at which point she decides to get an abortion which again is a tense moment but which they reluctantly realize they're not meant to be together although they will always love each other they part directions and then we begin to realize that the nazis have taken hold oh yeah that was way better than mine i got i got yeah. too like caught up in the broad like yeah. historical stroke i was like hey, was good uh, <laughs> i will say like for me having been i chose these three because they were like at, under the guise of iconoclasts yeah, these are musicals yeah. that are different than most. And I, having not seen Catboy, I was shocked by how similar it was to the other two in terms of how, how episodic it was and also in terms of how mm-hmm. truly outside of maybe Popeye, it's not a musical in a way that we've talked about musicals. Yeah, especially no. like it's all of its musical numbers are, are taking place like diegetically. Yeah. Uh, which, is, which is cool. Uh, I'm always a fan of that. Um, yeah. I think that what I really liked about this one, and this is something that Thaddeus and I will probably harp on far too much because it is one of our, like, personal bugbears, is that I really like that. So Sally is sort of too big in every way. She's always telling these very dramatic stories and these very dramatic lies. And at one point in time, trying to sort of get him, she turns to Brian and says, have you ever had sex with a midget? And what do you say? He says, only once it didn't the relationship didn't last and she's like stuck like she's, off her she's just like caught flat-footed by it it's great like because that's sort of our first indication that that the character of brian is more than the the sort of stuffed shirt english guy abroad right. that that he seems when we first meet him like it's such a great character moment between those two i love it so much but they're like the, the later relationship it starts sort of starts to indicate that brian is jealous of the Lord because he clearly has an emotional relationship with or is sleeping with Sally and then when he later reviews he's sleeping with him as well it's just like oh no he's just tense about his own queerness like that's yeah. where the hostility comes from yeah, it's he's not such sure... a great it's such a great zigzag this movie is uh, like it's it's such a great like character study of relationships and like people who don't fit well into society which like I mean even even like the saying that like Weimar Germany was way more open than than people might realize now like you know people are still navigating like various rigid social roles and it's it's just super interesting to see these very well put together very well performed personalities like clash off of each other and and like uh, it's uh yeah it's, it's just really engrossing 
Well, it's just she's sorry. Just the Sally is the kind of personality that people would label like as difficult, and she meets this guy who's like. Yeah, I like you the way that you are, and I also like dudes sometimes. And they have a really good relationship. Like even at the end, when they're like, "Oh, this thing where we get married and we go off together and have a baby that's not going to work for us," they 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 are sad and like almost nostalgic about it. Mm-hmm. But they're not angry with each other or at life. They're like, yeah, but just goes that way sometimes, which is it's it's nice. It's nice to not be like, and then we got married and everything was great. Sometimes like, no, and then we broke up and we loved each other from a distance. Yeah, well, like that's so beautiful. Speaking of Sally, like, uh, in terms of borderline personality disorder, the moment she announces a pregnancy, mm. and I'm just like, okay, well, this is randomly quiet. God damn it, I'm pregnant. I was like, wow, that's loud. Okay, wow. <laughs> it's that's such a great a setup. Way to announce that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like noticeably quiet and then just like erupt. <laughs> it's so good. But, like, at the same time, like, I I love the fact that you have all these sort of beautifully flawed characters, and they're never really punished mm. for their flaws. Yeah. And really, they will be. Well, yeah, yeah they oh. will be, because oh. the Nazis oh. will come. Um, and I mean, that's I think that's sort of the thing, is like, oh, they're, they're about to be. This is all about to end. Bloody. Right. I think what the movie's trying to say is the fact that they they notice the fascism, but they're not doing anything. Yeah. And they're the ones who are going to be hurt the most by what's happening. You have mm. the Jew, uh, the Jewish heirish and the con man who reveals himself to be both, uh, I believe, rich and Jewish. You yeah. have the immigrant and Sally Bowles. And you have the queer representation of Brian. Mm. These are people who are going to... And they, they talk about how they see what's happening. And, and even I mean, the, the Lord... Who's yeah. human in them? Like all these people will not, more than likely not make it out alive. And yeah, yet, the people. Yeah, Brian, Brian gets beat up at one point. Like that, right. that's one point of reconciliation is how badly he's beaten that Sally comes to take care of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the and I mean like the people who notice it the most. Like that's one of the reasons why. Like one of the things I jumped at immediately when trying to like reform the the various episodes in my head was like the the con man whose character name keeps escaping me. Right. Um, like he, he, and like the the woman that he loves, like they they clearly see what's going on before anyone else, and like the because like because they're targets of it more overtly just by being Jewish. Like uh, I mean, he he's in disguise, all like he's he's passing already when we meet him for right. for not being Jewish, and like then he eventually is put in that situation where like in order to be with the person he loves, he has to decide if he wants to sacrifice passing in this society that if he gives that up, he will definitely pay for. And Fritz is his name, by the way. Fritz, th- yeah, thank you. Um, it's such, like, it's such a, like, especially for a character that we in- initially are introduced to, is this just like, oh, look at this, like, scoundrel guy, like, being a, a whatever, and then, like, oh, oh, there's a lot going on with this dude, and I don't know, I, I, was, I was really, like, struck by that, like, because it's just this really interesting side commentary on, on what it means to pass in a society right. that hates you well also and again like part of the part of the movies we know what's coming Mm. so he's like you know what i'm gonna say i'm gonna be like i am jewish i'm gonna marry this woman that i love who's this beautiful heiress and then we'll just kind of see what happens as they come and we know what's coming yeah yeah they're probably not going to make out of it alive what's fascinating is cabaret out of all three of these is also technically probably the most 
the best put together of them all, and it's Fosse directs us in such a way where the cuts are harsh, mm. but only in a mm-hmm. sense to jilt you because he's trying to get you jilted. And yet then he'll do another thing that's, I guess, jilting as well, but without doing a harsh cut, such as um, Tomorrow Belongs to Me scene. Mm. But even then, mm-hmm. that's edited in such a way of with montages of the crowd joining in. Yeah. That it's meant to... There's a rhythm to the editing that's not there in the other movies. Mm. Mm. And it's I think it comes from the musical theater background of like treating the film as a another tool with the music as opposed to just having the camera there to record it all. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. All right. Um, moving on to the next one, everyone's <laughs> favorite, Popeye. This movie is amazing. I I kind of uh, love Popeye. I'm not going to lie. I, I, I do understand why, like, Kara finds the songs sort of grating. Like I, I I'm not gonna get it. I'm not gonna take Large. the opposite side in that fight. <laughs> but it's it's so like they did so much to make this like comic strip world real that it is <laughs> staggering. Like that set is still there today. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who are so aware, the, hmm? if I can very quickly, the erstwhile plot of Popeye. Uh, Oh, yeah, go ahead. Is Popeye arrives at Sweet Haven? Yes. Mm-hmm. Popeye Sweet arrives at Sweet, Sweet Haven, Haven where he is highly unwelcomed, as Sweet Haven is controlled by the Commodore, whose first man and the only person he never meets, Bluto, rules the town with an iron fist. Bluto is engaged to Olive Oil, who is both somewhat obnoxious and unsure about whether or not she wants to marry him. Popeye takes a room in her house. They slowly become closer as an orphaned baby is left on the doorstep, and they slowly become an emotional couple, at which point they discover that Sweet Pea can tell the future. Bluto steals Sweet Pea in an effort to gamble on the horse races, which is weird, because as the Commodore reports out to him, they are actually, you know, the ones who set the races. <laughs> uh, Bluto turns on the Commodore to sail off for the, his riches that we suddenly find out halfway through the movie exist. The, I don't know if it's Commodore or Commander. I think it's Commodore. Commodore. Commodore uh, when Popeye finally meets him, discovers it's his father, which the Commodore denies. Mm-hmm. Everyone in town finally rallies to go and rescue Sweet Pea, at which point the Commodore then tries to convince Popeye that he is his father, which Popeye denies. <laughs> An octopus rises up from the deep. It turns out the hidden treasure is just reminding them of how great Popeye was, and he finally eats his spinach to fight the octopus. Yep. Uh, no. I love every part of that. <laughs> it's so I, need, I need the audience, whoever they may be, to understand. I don't, I'm not playing games with you here. I have described this movie very well. Yeah, you have. Yeah, no, that was, that was pretty good. Uh, that was pretty good. Perfect. Although, oh yeah, actually, sorry, go ahead, Jeremiah. <laughs> uh, Robert Altman, at this point in time, was in a slump of his career. Robert Altman uh, direct, wrote, uh, wrote and directed MASH. I shouldn't say wrote. Directed mm. MASH, uh, which became the hit TV show. Directed Nashville. Mm. Um, and then he went into a bit of a slump. Well, it wasn't really a slump. People called it a slump. They just weren't as popular as his early movies. Yeah, it's, Robert it's the, Altman, the suffering by comparison. Yeah. To Robert Altman is stuff. a director who is famous for the fact that his movies have a sort of like... He created a new way to record sound so actors could talk over each other to reach a sort of more... Mm-hmm. A, another level of cinema verite. And because mm-hmm. of that, his films require multiple viewings. Not just because of the overlapping dialogue, but because his camera sort of glides along 
And because he has so many people in the movie, though so many people in the thing, that everyone is acting, and so it's easy to miss a lot of stuff. And it's not just a plot, it's a story. So you're just following all these random different people. It's mm. kind of like Crazy yep. Rich Asians. I mean, and if, if you're, like, I, personally, I think my, my favorite uh, Altman movie, surprising no one, uh, is going to be The Long Goodbye. That's which, a good one. Oh, uh, it's, it's so good. But what's uh, so weird I is... Like, like I, I actually, like, a lot of people, I didn't see the movie MASH until I was already pretty familiar with the series, but right. uh, it's it's really good. See, this this is where y'all make me feel like a Philistine sometimes, because, like, I always think... I have weird taste in movies until I talk to you guys because I'm going to be honest, <laughs> I hate that. Okay. I hate it. I don't mind a movie with multiple viewings, but if I'm paying attention to the screen and I can't pick up all the salient parts of what's happening, it, 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 fuck you. I mean, if it if it makes you feel better, uh, most people don't make films like that, so you're fine. Yeah, <laughs> I know they don't, and there's a reason, because I personally hate it, and they took a poll of me. <laughs> well, and also, to be fair... With the most Altman movies, when I say they require multiple viewings, you can get the gist of it the first time. Like, it's you you absorb it, it's just not so much consciously. And then as you go mm. back, you start to notice other things. Most movies, when you go back, you notice little things, but with Altman, there's more to digest. Um, if you don't get it the first time, it's um, fine. You don't have to go back. I'm, I'm going to go with richly textured? Yes. The, there, There's... A, a dinner scene where, like, characters are doing that overlapping talking. So Popeye is kind of mumbling to himself watching these idiots. <laughs> and Olive Oil is running her mouth where literally anytime someone says anything, she takes the opposite position of whatever it is they said just to be argumentative. Right. And her brother and dad are trying to get her to shut up and her mom is trying to control the table. And it, like, essentially what engenders to me is a feeling of both annoyance because there's so much talking I can't follow and, like, anxiety. Because if I wanted to visit my mother, I could visit my mother. <laughs> I was right. waiting for that drop. Shut well, up. Uh... Well, that, and that's part of the thing because, as I just described Robert Altman, he's not a director you would think of for Popeye, mm. which is a 1920s comic strip. And the fact that they went with musical, which he's also not something his movies tend to lend themselves to. As mm. well as the fact that the lyricist is Harry Nielsen. <laughs> and so, and so what you have is not a, it's, it's a musical, but more than anything, it's a Robert Altman movie to such a degree that it almost doesn't feel like anything else. It is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, unique is a word that gets thrown around too much, but this is a unique film. Yeah, there's... Like that like said, the set he built almost inhibits movement which is yeah. the thing you need for a musical and it's it's such a like you know what i will compare it to in terms of of evoking a sort of cartoonish reality what uh one of my uh, although this one did it in a little bit more literal of a way but uh one of one of my favorite films that doesn't get talked about enough dick tracy yeah, yeah. I, I like dick tracy because just in terms of like what like cuz cuz too many people i think when adapting comics uh especially now that we live in a marvel cinematic universe world x-men and i have a lot of fun <laughs> with those movies but like very few people take another track in the way that like tim burton did with batman or, right. or in the way that like the dick tracy movie did where it's like 
let's let's make these look a little bit like they couldn't happen in reality. Like let's right. let's make them more than like re- that sort of hyper real like comic book comic strip logic. And it's, but it's I it's not it. hyper real because if you watch if you read the old Popeye comics or you watch the old Popeye cartoons, it has the, the old cartoon thing where to make animation simple, a room will have like a chair, a bed, and like a wire on the wall. And like they do that, it's it's like a comic come to life, and it's even the things where like the characters' clothes don't fit right, right. almost. It is one like of the. Sorry, go ahead. It what I would say that for for recommendation of this is it has a very clear intentionality to it. This isn't somebody that screwed up or didn't know what they were doing or threw something together or like, you know, oh, the producers interfered. This was a clear vision that was executed with that vision in mind. How you feel about that vision is up to you, but like this is something that was done with purposeful intent and knew the effect it would have on people. Which is kind of why I love this movie. (laughs) Yeah. And because I agree, like, it's one of the things where like, it's kind of infuriating because there are, like, the script is horrible. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like, the whole baby predicting the future thing comes out of left field. And yeah, I am with you, Claire, the, the fact like... that I'm like, I don't know where they're going. And not in, like, this some sort of, like, inventive, like, ooh. I'm just more like, I, I don't know. What what are we doing, folks? What What's going I'm not bored, but I am confused as the purpose of what's going on. I, I don't know. I feel like... I, I, I want to defend that as a as a choice because the way like it makes a lot of sense to me, which I'm sure proves something terrible. But yeah. <laughs> uh, because like we we have we're all old enough to have seen like, like Popeye cartoons and reruns on television back when. Right. Uh, okay, kids, uh, broadcast television <laughs> is when. <laughs> anyway, but so I feel like the thing that I I really like on it being very earnest love and respect about the Popeye movie. One of the things, because I like a lot of things about it. Its design is just amazing. But, and Robin Williams is a treasure. Yes. Uh, But, what would happen if you took, like, the 15 minute cartoon short plot logic and stretched it into a two hour movie? Right. Yeah. Like, I feel like this is, I feel like this is earnestly what would happen. It's it's just nonsense, but it makes cartoon sense. Yes, like the, again, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like that they weren't sure what they were doing and they were feeling time. Like everything feels. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's a very. I think it's a very confident movie. Oh yeah. If, if I may, I'm Go so ahead. sorry. I'm going to bring up the thing that I always bring up. Dead. Rockadoodle. Nice. Okay. <laughs> So Rockadoodle is a movie, when you watch it as an adult, you feel like you are on drugs. It makes no goddamn sense. But when you watch Rockadoodle, when you're like four, you're like, yes, this is thematically clear to me. And that's how I feel that Popeye is, except Popeye, it's only like that for maybe Altman. (laughs) He was like, yes, this makes perfect sense to me. And if you are not currently being Altman, you can kind of see why it made sense to him you see as a coherent vision but you're like yeah so this is what's happening right now why is this movie so gray well i will say it's weird kids really loved this movie when it came out yeah i I loved it again i loved it when i was three i can sing the songs they're in my head you have reawoken them they eat at my mind (laughs) i kind of like the songs but all right um but let's okay you mentioned 
not that one, but you, <laughs> you mentioned that's the one that's in my head. You mentioned Robin Williams. This is his first movie, and this is a weird chance to take for your first movie. Yeah, I'll play very a much. mumbling cartoon sailor, and uh, the other person is Shelley Duvall, the magical, wonderful Shelley Duvall, uh, who is she, so they're better from Hollywood. Perfectly olive oil. She's so she's, she's the right person. They uh, they slammed that casting. Uh, I, yeah. Also, they give um Robin Williams giant forearms, like giant Popeye yeah, forearms. Such great, it's so good. <laughs> and yet, because I actually was... wonder. Go ahead. I, I was actually wondering if they let him improv, so because like that's what Robin Williams is always known for, like his like off the cuff, off the cuff, off the cuff. Whoa. Okay, oh, that yeah, phrase absolutely. is gone now. His yeah, and so like his, it, he's hard to understand, and especially like he'd be hard with even out the talking over him. But if you watch him and just listen to Robin Williams, it's a different movie from the movie that you're watching. Yeah, <laughs> because it's watching the peanut gallery that's on the stage comment on the peanut gallery that they're watching. Well, because it's all yeah, Popeye's one of the few people who's kind of like closer to the perspective of the audience in this movie. Yeah, which is kind of what I'm talking. Car- yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, it's kind of what I mean in which you have to rewatch it because, like, it's one of the things with so much is going on, and then you watch and you mm. just focus on Popeye. Like, he's kind of pissed at everybody. <laughs> he's like, what are you guys just doing? You're not standing like he's like you got to stand up for the little guy. Why are you sitting down? We have to do something. And it's this weird, so like all these sort of different ongoing stories and there's a weird mm-hmm. physicality to everybody and part of mm-hmm. that is i can't find the name but altman hired a group uh the, the group that basically inspired circus de, du soleil oh and so those oh. are a lot of the background people so that's why you have all these sort of like wonderfully sort of physical weirdly moving people but not moving in a way that's not noticeable, but they're not also impossible to look at. Mm. And but mm-hmm. to Kayla's point about Robin's improvisa- uh, improvisation, Altman encouraged improvisation in his movies. So I'm mm-hmm. almost betting Robin Williams got away with it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but what Kayla says about how it's absolutely like the look of it, it is like, once again it's fascinating because it is absolutely a cartoon. Mm. But the mm-hmm. The port, the dock, it feels like it's been there forever. Like, it's yeah. not cartoonish in the way that Dick Tracy is, because Dick Tracy feels like yeah, no, yeah. it's no, no, being no, no. drawn I, on paper. This I, feels I feel cartoonish like in a sense that, like, the new adventures of Pippi Longstocking. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love Pippi Longstocking. Right, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, I, I, was, I was drawing that comparison not, not necessarily because of, like, the similar actions, but I feel right. like complete, completely different approaches to evoking kind yeah. of the same sense. There's a tactileness to the scenery that's very like yeah. different for the type of movie you would expect to be watching. And having yeah, I, watched it as many times as I had, there's even a bizarre sort of like anti-nationalism undercurrent to the whole thing. Because I started like on the yeah. third time, I was like, there are a lot of flags. And then you hear the Sweetwater Anthem. I was like, oh, he's making a comment. Okay. Because hmm. the Sweetwater Anthem, the, um... one of the verses is, God must have put us here. God must love us. Why else would he put us here? Mm. Yeah. The, so for the evocative of the movie, um, 
this is going to make me again sound like a philistine i don't like it when water in movies looks like water in real life <laughs> okay uh it, it it really bothers me and i i don't know you're gonna, you're gonna need to give a clearer explanation of what that means so in real life water is always this like weird gray green bluish color yes. and like the waves aren't very nice if you've ever been to a lake like lake water is is gross it's yes. gross water and you're like well this is real life and then you look at the movies with the water is like azure like it's not blue that shit is azure I mean, this water be, is not fair, azure there are places where water is like that we just don't yeah. live near any of them <laughs> yeah and so what, what the thing is about this movie and i don't mean this actually in a bad way at all is when you look at the town you can smell it yeah, and I don't mean that like a gross way, but I'm like you're like oh like I bet I, you can almost smell like the rope and the old wood and the smell of like water right by the ocean, and it's just like like you can taste what the air would be like. It feels so real and so fake at the same time. <laughs> it's very strange, but like you can, it it feels like you can smell it. Like, and when they have the boat chase at the end, I'm like you you're actually having a boat chase and i must admit it's about as exciting as a boat chase sounds not that exciting and i mean until they start firing no you're just like wait you're actually you you built this you spent money on this and part of me wonders if he did it in malta just to get away from the studio and do whatever the hell he wanted I would not at all be surprised. Because I'm like, there's no way any executive would be like, oh, yeah, you want to use two actual ships and have what feels like a 15-minute scene of just going back and forth? (laughs) But but the octopus was fucking rad. The octopus Uh, was rad? Look, I have uh, a conspiracy theory that Mm -hmm. I desperately want to be true, but I don't really have anything other than, like, uh, because a fight with an octopus... uh, could just be a fight with an octopus, but but there's also a fight with an octopus in Gravity's Rainbow. So there's part of me that desperately wants this to be a reference to a book that like only stuck up assholes like me read. <laughs> well, I will say that for like all this flaws, I found in myself in moments really sort of moved by the sincerity of it all. Um, yeah, when a Popeye and olive oil seeing uh stay with me or come with me yeah we'll do what they have with the baby that is surprisingly sweet and moving yeah and when popeye and olive oil both have their own little like lonely ballads uh he needs me and all and popeye's i need you like there's a duality to these songs that are oddly affecting Hmm. i actually like um my favorite song is uh, so, Popeye, they have realized that the baby Sweet Pea can predict the horse races, and the horse races aren't real horses, they're those little, like, toy ones. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's not happy about it, that they're using, essentially, his baby to make money. Yeah. And he starts to nervously pace around, and then he sings, um, I am what I am. I am what I and am, what I am, what I am. And yeah. so it's him sort of gearing himself up to be like, I- I'm not okay with this. Also, again, favorite point. This is a movie that features a heterosexual couple, um, Popeye and Olive Oil, and it's very much about Popeye sort of winning Oil's affections away from Bluto, who she doesn't like that much, and so on and so forth. But when he gets the baby, he describes himself very clearly as the baby's mother. Yeah. And he continues to, to insist on this for the rest of the thing. And I think at one point he's like, well, you can be, he tells like Oil, like, you can be the father, but I'm clearly the mom. 
<laughs> and he won't see that ground. And again, it's just such a great small point. Because yeah. he's not doing it for a laugh. No, no, it's not at all set up like a joke. Again, that like earnestness comes into play. No, he, I... he very sincerely like this is his baby, and he is this baby's mom. <laughs> it's yeah, it's lovely. All right, moving on to the last one, Yentl, nineteen eighty three. Yeah, this, uh, this, the uh... Barbara Streisand directed and written. <laughs> um, and, and you know what? Like, uh, I think. It seems like one of those things where where someone could say it's sort of uh, I don't know uh, uh, a little bit too much of a everybody look at me, but like when this is what you you put out when you yeah. you do your sort of uh, personal project that's focused on just you singing and all this, like good job. I I am not at all judging. This is this was great. <laughs> it was it was so sad. Yeah, that too. Can I can I do oh, one? Yeah, no, you no, may do, do it. it. Do it. You're better at this than I am. <laughs> okay. So Yentl is a Barbara Streisand-aged woman in a small village whose father... <laughs> whose father is a rabbi in a small village. And for those who don't know, um, Jewish... Jew, Jewish? Wow. Jews have something called the Talmud, and the Talmud is sort of a bigger workout of all the implications of everything in the Torah and of the Jewish faith. And you study it and you argue it to details obsessively to show like your sort of knowledge of religion and God in the world. And it's not something that women are to read or to really engage with. Um, Her father has taught her this in secret. Her father dies and she decides that she will no longer be the a uh, small woman, so she cuts her hair, puts on her father's clothes, takes the name of her dead brother, and goes into the city to join a Talmudic school to study, whereupon she meets a man, forget his name, uh, she meets a man who she both falls in love with, but also falls in intellectual love with, and he fall in he intellectually loves her as well, knowing her only as a man. He has a fiancé, and we find out that his engagement with his fiance is broken because his brother committed suicide and is against Talmudic law to marry anyone who's to marry into a family where there's a suicide. So he convinces his friend, who he does not know is secretly a woman, to marry his wife on the grounds if anything happens to her as they are basically brothers, he will be able to marry her and he can keep her close and make sure that she is safe. Uh, Yentl reluctantly agrees to this in somewhat horror fascination, marries, disguises a man, marries a woman, puts off copulations, but does teach her new wife how to read Talmud and begins to argue theology with her. After a while, she realizes that this relationship is completely undoable as she is in love with her friend, her friend is in love with her wife, and her life, her wife is both in love with her friend and has begun to fall in love with her. And she also realizes that she deeply, but perhaps not sexually, loves her wife as well. She, can, she goes away, confesses to her friend that she is in fact a woman. He asks to marry her, but advises her that she will have to live life as a normal Jewish woman. She refuses, divorces her wife, convinces them to marry, and, dr- and goes off to America to live a new life where she may study as she chooses. The uh, the friend in question, uh, the character's name is Avigdor, played by the uh, always charismatic Mandy Patinkin. And yes. the, uh, the fiancé in question is Hadass, played by Amy Irving, who I believe was also the singing voice for Jessica Rabbit? Yes. Uh, yes. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's a story with a lot of um, love. If you want to read it as a queer-coded story, as either a trans story or a gay story or bisexual story, that reading is very open. And I feel that Streisand at that point in her career knew that 
she had a strong LGBT audience that would respond to that. It's also a very, very Jewish story. Yeah. Um, and like, I, she, so unabashedly, like it's it's it's, <laughs> it's completely... unapologetically. There are no Gentiles in this story, as far as I can, as far as my memory is telling me. Yeah. It is a story of Jews and Jews alone, of Jewish culture, and it doesn't really try very hard to explain things to you. Yeah. It, it, if you if you don't know about Jew stuff, like like get off this train. We don't give a fuck. <laughs> well, there's a moment, the moment in which she confesses that she is a woman to Avondor. Like that is a very bracing moment because he Ooh. becomes he re- violent. Yeah. Yes, in a way that I don't like. And there's an that is almost an honesty moment. to like the abruptness of the violence. Yeah, yeah. It is. And it is a very frightening moment. It is because up until this point, we kind of love Avondor. Yeah, Avondor. And then when it happens, you're like, oh wow, okay, he is just a dude. And then when he's like, you can just be a wife, you can stay home. It's like, you haven't listened to anything. Oh, yeah, that's, that's heartbreaking. Like, it's, uh, yeah, just that. Also, just, the, yeah, the, the triangle between those three characters is incredibly well woven. But, like, by the time you get to when when Gentil reveals, like, uh, her, who she, like, reveals herself to, to Avigdor, like, you really kind of don't know what's going to happen. Like, it's, yeah. it's yeah. tense, and it's, and it's, like, just really affecting uh i yeah i like i i like barbara streisand is great like this movie was <laughs> just amazing uh, honestly um, though the, the songs are not my favorite part of it i mean there's also a couple of songs that you'll even if you've never seen this movie and know nothing about it you have heard before right. yes i'm kind of with care the songs mm. are not my favorite part there are a couple of good songs that i like Mm. Uh, Papa, can you see me? Yeah, and the song she sings on the wedding night. Yeah, mm. I I do find it really interesting how they de- how how she chose to deploy the songs. Yeah, uh, because they're yeah because because they're very um like just her internal like I mean everybody always says like oh well you know musicals like you, you things boil over and everybody sings but it's like it's only focused on her like she's the one singing. And also often it'll go from her singing to like her walking through like a room with other people in it. And like the, it'll still be her singing, but it'll just be the soundtrack. Like she won't be singing. It won't be showing her singing. And it's, right. it's just this interesting, like uh way of presenting that like the, the songs are very clearly like her internal struggle. Uh So there's like, I don't know, a loneliness to them that I find very striking. That's the fair. songs are her internal monologue is what it feels like. Yeah, yeah. Like, also... And even even when she's around others, that sort of isolation is part of them. There's an there's a sensuality and an eroticism to this movie mm. that mm-hmm. you don't normally get in a movie like this. And yeah. like it's not like in an exploitive way, but like you can feel the love and desire they have for each other. Even yeah. when she starts to fall in love with her wife. And it's mm-hmm. not a physical thing, but it's an intellectual thing. Like, you can feel the connection. Well, her her wife starts to study, and then her wife, like, tells her, like, I, you know, you're my husband, and I, I love you. You have, you have taken an interest in me. Like, like, she's clearly, like, they're responding to each other as, as human beings. And she has this moment where she's like, I can't give my wife the things that she wants, which are things like children right and i will never compromise i cannot give the man that i love the things that he wants which is a wife i refuse right 
there's also, I'm sorry, uh, so when she goes to the Talmudic school, she has to be placed, which means they have to both decide if they will allow her and then sort of see intellectually where she fits into the existing framework. And he's essentially, she's being quizzed. Right. And at one point she asks, she starts to ask a question. She's like, you know, given this and this and this and the nature of God and the nature of the Talmud, why is it that? And it cuts there. <laughs> and um, the then it opens, then it cuts to like a couple minutes later where the scholar comes out and grabs Avigdro and says, she's too smart to be in the bottom class. Her only intellectual <laughs> peer is you. He, he's too smart to be in the bottom class. His only intellectual peer is you. you. But we don't hear the question that Yentl asks that has right. that reaction. And I genuinely believe the question was, why do women not study Talmud? That has to be. I mean, that would be the That has question. to be the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's uh, the question that, that torments her. Um, quick question. Is this your first Streisand film for either one of you? As far as I know. Uh, okay. Let me see. I Off the top of my head, I want to say no, but I can't remember what other ones I've seen. Okay. I, I feel like I've seen her in something else, but I don't feel like whatever I saw her in was a so-called Streisand film, if that makes sense. That makes sense, yeah. No. But um, this is a movie she had been trying to make for years. No mm. one wanted to make it. And so... She got to the point where she had money and just made it herself. Oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. Legend has it she showed Spielberg a cut of the movie, asking him like what he she needed a cut. Mm. And he was like, "Don't cut anything; it's perfect. Why? Why would you touch this?" <laughs> <laughs> That's, but, uh, yeah. but outside of all of these movies we've talked about, the one that behaves the most like a musical, and like in the sense that we talk about, is Popeye. And yet, Popeye yeah. is the least of them—the musical. Yeah, <laughs> it's they're they're all yeah yeah I I one hundred percent agree because like this one feels more like a like I don't know a, a an epic historical like personal drama than a musical. Well, because the thing about this is it's really just people trying to get at the root of the moral clauses they've decided to live by. Yeah, it's like people versus society. The, right. If we're, if and we're boiling at the same time, realizing, oh crap, I'm falling in love. And somehow, yeah. I never thought to debate this. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Especially like between Cabaret and Yentl, I see there's there's a, uh, some interesting just like parallels in terms of the, those identity struggles. Yeah. Oh yeah, most definitely the identity struggles. I think the most, oddly enough, again, the most traditional it's Popeye. Yeah. <laughs> Where the identity struggle is finding his dad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which there, there's a group great bit in there where he's holding a photo frame being like you know dad someday i'll you know uh me pa- uh, my pappy someday i'll find you and i'll love you and it is literally an empty frame yeah the camera changes angles and we see that the frame's empty and it just says me pap and then we find yeah yeah way later the way later his dad has one that's the exact same thing but just says me son well, no, it's it's in his treasure chest, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I, I think it is. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Spinach as a plot point is not introduced until three fourths of the way through the film. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's kind of an well, I mean, it's it's essentially an origin story, but yeah. like it may be the only comic book origin story movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh... 
Alright, so, of the three, like, in, a, in what way do you think that how watching these has impacted, like, how we view musicals? In any way, shape, or form? Or just, like, are these outliers? I mean, like, Cabaret, to me, like, has its claws deep, deep in Chicago. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know how anyone could possibly deny that, especially the film version of Chicago. Yes. Like, um... I feel like Popeye, like, in the discourse, ended up being a one-off that's not repeated very often. Honestly, honestly I feel like Popeye's parallels are, are more outside of musicals. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. like, I see Popeye as being more influenced by, like, Richard Donner's Superman than... Uh, yeah. Than I see it as related to things, like, in the genre of movie musicals. Of that, like, uh, bringing, uh, like, sort of very sincere comic stuff to screen. I mean, I I think that it's sort of, it's more about the way that they pull up my idea of a musical, which is that um, for all the Yentl's in many ways, heartwarming is they lack two of the things that I guess I think musicals should have, which is terrible, but is that it needs to have a soundtrack that you can uh, sing alone in your car. (laughs) And it needs to make you feel in a way like good to watch it. Which Yentl has a little bit, but it's kind of too serious. Hmm. And okay. I guess, a, and I guess like Avita has that for me a little bit because like I'll watch that until the end of time. I'm obsessed with that <laughs> stupid movie. Yeah, you know um, that very upbeat movie, Avita. Yeah, but like when I look at like Avita <laughs> and like I'm like, yeah, like if you ask me to name a musical, I'd be like Avita and Jesus Christ Superstar because once again, I am a philistine. <laughs> I'll tell you this: one of the things that I adore and Koi adores this as well, is how angry to this very day Meryl Streep is that she lost out to Madonna for that role. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I could imagine. (laughs) Can Meryl Streep sing? I didn't see Mamma Mia because I despise jukebox musicals. Um, yeah. Yeah, she can. Well, yeah, she's in Mary Poppins Returns. She sings, yeah. Was she is she good? Like I know that she was also in um the the crud the the fairy one. Uh the Daddy's the one that ripped your face off the musical. What? You were the, the has like the wolf makeup. Oh uh, into, into the, the woods. woods. Into yeah, the woods. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, I thought you were being figurative, not literal. Well yeah, yeah, no no no. I was just like the fairy musical rip your face off? I am confused. No, well, yeah. so... uh, Kara, Kara is, uh, for those of you playing along at home, Kara is referencing <laughs> the fact that when I was a, a freshman in high school, I was the wolf in a production <laughs> of Into the Woods, and no one really seemed to know how to remove effects makeup super well, so it did a little bit of damage to my face that is noticeable still if you know where to look. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah, just it just ripped off like a chunk of Thaddeus's face, and if you look really closely at certain parts of his face, you see the chunk that is uh, missing. That explains so much. Uh, uh, it doesn't. doesn't. You know what the sad thing is? Is it explains a lot less than you think it should. <laughs> um, so that's really all the time we have for now. Um, next week. I'm oh, sorry, not next week. Ugh. In uh, the future. The next the podcast, uh, we'll be back, and we're going to take a break from musicals. We'll be joined by Molly, and we're going to talk about bonkers melodramas, uh, which are... Where the Heart Is, Book of Henry, Fad's favorite movie, and Collateral Beauty. I, I, ugh, you're just, 
Ugh. I have pound for pound watched more YouTube videos about the book of Henry okay. than, are, uh, than the out. book of Henry is time long. Out. Time out. You have not watched, you've watched two YouTube videos about <laughs> book of Henry. They're both by Dan Olson. It's just that you've watched them over and over. And that is not a complaint. They're great. But I'm just saying you are, you are not explaining that well. So here, here's the thing. I watched those videos but between the two of them, he spent like almost two hours ranting about how terrible this film was. All right, but we're wrapping those that we should. Sorry, yeah, we're wrapping those. Uh, before we go, just real quick, if the, of the three, which one of these would you recommend? Oh, if I only had to recommend one, yes, probably Cabaret. Cabaret. I say Cabaret as well. Yeah, yep. I, I, I really, I was surprised how much I, I loved all three of these movies actually, but. Um, <laughs> Because uh, I, I just I didn't know what to expect, especially about Popeye, because I'd forgotten it entirely, other right. than knowing that I watched it. But they're they're I earnestly enjoyed all three a lot. I would put Popeye's like right in the Napoleon Dynamite territory, which is that you're gonna like it or you're gonna hate it, but there's no real oh, way to predict how you'll feel about it until it begins. Hmm. Like I there's a there's a YouTube reviewer called Musicals from Hell, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she does a she has an episode about the Popeye, and mm-hmm. like. It made me really angry because she's 100% correct, but I still love the movie entirely. I was like, how dare you? Um, how dare you wound me with truth in these ways? Well, no, well, she is also like, Shelley Duvall has the worst voice ever. I'm like, okay, you, you leave Shelley Duvall alone. First of all, she's doing that on purpose. Have you never seen Popeye cartoon? All right. So that's all the time we have for now. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll be back next time. Uh, say goodbye, Thad and Kev. Yeah, okay. Goodbye, Thad and Kara. Awesome.